step out of heaven. Take on a robe of human flesh. To take on the full life of a human being. To live for us a life of sacrifice. To live perfectly as we should have. To die sacrificially because we couldn't. To give your life a ransom for many. Lord, as we embrace the manger, the scene of your birth, may we never, never forget that you were born to die to redeem mankind. Lord, may we rejoice this Christmas season knowing that we have a Savior who was born in Bethlehem. Speak to us today through Pastor Mark. Give him clear words. Pierce our heart with your spirit. Give us clear instructions of what we should follow. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. How's everybody doing? If our greatest need as a culture, as a human species, had been for information, God would have sent us a great educator. If our greatest need had been for technology, he would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been for money or to understand money, he would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been for pleasure, he would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need instead was for forgiveness. So he sent us a Savior. Now if we accept that at the beginning of the, of the, the Christmas story, the Nativity, if we accept and understand that our greatest obstacles in our relationship with God are his inability to be in the presence of sin and our inability to live a sinless life, so therefore we cannot be in the presence of God, not under our own power or our own understanding or our own divinity. So if we accept those things, that helps us to frame the nativity differently from being a kind of an acute seasonal story and how easily it falls into just part of the Christmas yard decorations with Santa and Rudolph. How easily it just kind of falls into the, the background of our home decorations with our trees and our wreaths and our stockings and all of the gifts. But if we are able to reframe it as more than just a cute seasonal story, and we are able to understand that it is the first several chapters in a story about the redemption of mankind, then I think we are, we are well on the way to understanding the important part in place. 
as Pastor Steve was just talking about, we are doing the nativity a little bit differently this year. As, as we add things in one piece at a time, and, and our desire is to look at that, how does the nativity impact our faith all year long? How does it impact our faith for the rest of our lives? Not just now during December when we've got the Christmas music and all of the Christmas decorations that are bombarding us in our culture. But what does it have to do with the sacrifice and the punishment, the pain, the suffering, the death, and the ultimate resurrection of our Savior? In Luke chapter 1, that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. I haven't given Ben a bunch of scripture to, to put up on the screen, simply because I think most of us know this story. But in Luke chapter 1, starting in, in verse 5, during the time when Herod ruled Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. He belonged to a religious group. His wife came from the family of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth were both good people who pleased God. They did everything the Lord commanded, always following his instructions completely. But they had no children. Elizabeth could not have a baby, and both of them were very old. Now this tells us three really important things about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the first thing that Luke lists might be the most important is that they were good people. In fact, a lot of biblical translations use the word blameless. Some translations even say that they were sinless in the eyes of God. Now that doesn't mean that they were perfect people without sin. They were just like all of us, and they struggle with sin just like we all do. But when this says sinless in the eyes of God, that means when God saw them, he didn't see their sin, because when they sinned, they were anxious to make restitution. They were anxious to repent and atone. They were ashamed of their sin. They understood what their sin did to their relationship with God. And they worked to make that right. So God saw them as good people. Not perfect people. But as sinners who wanted to serve Him and honor Him. The second thing He tells us is that they were childless. Now it's important... Luke went out of his way to list that they were good people first, because often in that culture, when Luke was written, and in the culture when Zechariah and Elizabeth were alive, if you were childless, it was often assumed to be the result of sin. God was punishing you for some reason. That's not a godly understanding, but that was often just the way people assumed. If there was a couple that didn't have children, it's because of some sort of sin in their life. So Luke goes out of his way to say, first, these are good people. These, these are not people whose lives are filled with sin. And they were childless. So being childless had nothing to do with them being horrible sinners. And then the third thing he tells us is that they were very old. This was not a couple that was recently married. This was not a, a young couple right out of college starting their careers. This was an older couple, well past the age of having children old enough to be grandparents or even great-grandparents had they had a family. Zechariah, he was a, he was a priest. Now what that meant was he was, he was a, a descendant in his line of ancestors and he came from, from a line of priests. And what they did is the priest would gather, he worked two weeks out of the year as a priest. 
And they would go into the temple area, and then the priests that were there for that two weeks, they would draw lots. That just mean they would kind of pull a name out of a hat, or they would draw straws, or, or however they decided it. And they would decide who was going to go in and light the incense when they would pray. Now, the incense didn't have any sort of supernatural power, but the incense represented prayer because it was kind of a visual picture. People could see the smoke going up, upwards like it was going to heaven. And so they would have the incense going, people could smell it, and they would know that that was something they could smell during prayer time, and they could see the smoke going up, and that represented the prayers going up to heaven. And, and he, he had drawn the lot, it was his job to go in and to light the incense. In verse 10 of the first chapter of Luke, it says, There was a large crowd outside praying at the time the incense was offered. Then on the right side of the incense table, an angel of the Lord came and stood before Zechariah. When he saw the angel, Zechariah was upset and very afraid. But the angel said to him, Zechariah, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard by God. Your wife Elizabeth will give birth to a baby boy, and you will name him John. He tells him, your prayer has been heard. Now, obviously, this was not that day's prayer or a current prayer. And we can tell in the very next verse, uh, Zechariah, or Luke one eighteen. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I know that what you say is true? I am an old man and my wife is too old. And in some translations, he says, my wife is very advanced in years. Or my wife is well advanced in years. Doesn't matter how you say it. Gentlemen, that's not a good way to refer to your wife. <laughs> no matter which translation you use, just avoid that conversation as much as possible. But we know that that wasn't a recent prayer because when, when the angel shows up, it says, your prayer has been answered, your wife is going to have a baby. Obviously, that wasn't something he was praying right then, or, or he might have been excited. This was a prayer from years and years ago because he was very old, and, and, and he didn't respond with excitement, he responded with doubt. But the angel's words tell us that at some point in his life, this had been a prayer. So this tells us that in addition to being an elderly, childless couple, this was a couple that wanted children. And they wouldn't have just wanted them culturally because people looked at them like they were doing something wrong without children, but they had prayed for children. They wanted children. But God works in his own time, not in our own time. And as I look around the room, I know some of you, we have, we have prayed together for things that haven't happened yet, or maybe won't happen. And we sometimes get frustrated with God's timing, and I'm sure Zechariah was, was no different. They had prayed for a child, and, and they were well past the age where that would happen. So I think they had kind of taken that prayer and kind of tucked it away under... This isn't something that's going to happen to us. And whether they had made complete peace with that or not, they weren't expecting it. They were well past the age where, where they thought that would happen. But God does not work in our time. He works in his own. Now, let me stop the sermon for a minute and just kind of be a, a student pastor for a minute. I know some of the questions I, I often get. If, if God hears every prayer, then why do we need to keep Keep praying. Why do we need to pray about stuff again that we've already prayed about? 
Because if Zechariah prayed for a child, and that was still a valid prayer all these years later, if I pray for my child to be safe at school on their first day of kindergarten, why do I need to pray again when they're in the third grade? Doesn't If prayers don't expire, doesn't that one prayer cover that? In fact, and, and teenagers often take that a step further, they say, you know, if God already has a plan, why do we need to pray at all? If he already has an agenda and he already knows what's going to happen, what's the point of us praying for an outcome we want if, if he has a plan that's not going to involve that? Why do you think that is? Why do you think prayer is so important, even knowing those things to be true? That our prayers don't expire, and that God has a plan that sometimes isn't ours. Why should we continue to pray? He wants to hear from us. He wants to hear from us? What were you saying, Sam? To build to build your faith, to build our faith, to build my faith. What a, what a perfect answer, because it demonstrates faith. When we talk to God and we expect that he is hearing us, that we have faith that he's hearing us, we're demonstrating our faith. And faith is God's love language, so to speak. Now that phrase, love language, that's kind of a pop culture phrase. And, and what it means is it just kind of describes a unique action or a unique thing. Each of us allegedly has our own love language. If you've ever looked into that or cared about that, um, those are that's the kind of wording of daytime television. It's not necessarily a, a scriptural thing, but we each have those little things that when somebody does them for us, it demonstrates love. Or those little ways that that's our particular way of demonstrating love that we're most comfortable in. You know, some some people like to give flowers or get flowers or give candy or get candy. For me, my my love language is food. And as I know some of you are juggling, it's not just what I like to get. When I do. But food is often the way that I can express love to people. I can't come to your house and fix anything that's broken. I cannot. I do not have that skill. I cannot build something for you. I just cannot. But I can bring you some food. You know, a couple weeks ago, I took a bunch of tacos out to, to Allison and Eric. Last week, I, I sent home with Eric a bunch of chili. I can express my love for them and their family through food. That's what I can do. Well, the same way that, you know, we kind of laugh about that. Food is Pastor Mark's love language. But faith is God's love language. You demonstrate faith. You are showing him that you love him. Think about a child with a, with a book with a favorite story. Years ago, when my nephew was, was just maybe a little bit older, than Piper is now, not quite three years old, old enough to, to talk and to, to know a bunch of words, but not old enough to do much else. I was over there for dinner, and my sister-in-law is getting dinner ready, and, and he, he wants his mom to read him a book, and she says, I can't do it right now, I'm making dinner. Go see if Uncle Mark will read you the book. So we get up on the couch, and I open the book, his favorite book, to the very first page, and he points at the picture on the page, and then he starts reading the words to me off of that page. And I turn the page, and he starts reading the next page. And I'm really excited. I'm like, this kid's not even three years old yet. This is like a genius here. You know, you can take this kid in. He's going to complete college by the time he's 10. This is amazing. And my brother, my brother says, you know, don't, don't get real excited. It's not because he's a genius. He's got the story memorized. 
He's heard that story so many times. It's been read to him so many times that just holding the book, he knows every word. And he can look at the picture and know all the words that are on that page. When you turn the next page, he knows all of that. Well, why does, why does a little child want the same favorite story read over and over again? The child does not say, hey, read this book to me. I want to see how the story goes. I want to see how it comes out. No, the child is bringing you the book saying, spend some time with me. Love me for a few minutes. Let's, let's spend this time together doing something that pleases both of us. That's the same with God. When we go and have a conversation with God that we have already had, it pleases him. He's not up in heaven rolling his eyes saying, oh, she prays for this every day. No, he's, he is tickled to spend that time with you. That is his love language you're speaking when you begin to pray and you say, God, I know that you can hear me. That is why we continue to pray. Those little detours from the sermon, but I think we so easily sometimes think, you know, if our prayers don't expire, why do I have to keep saying them? If God already has a plan, what's the point of Zechariah praying for a child when God's plan is already that they're not going to have a child? Well, it's for that faith, for that. So Zechariah, he had, he had prayed for a child years ago. And the angel shows up and the angel is telling him, your prayer is being answered in a very surprising way years after you were expecting, long after it was spoken. But that's okay because God has his own time and God's not bound by your time. So Zechariah, how can I know what you say is true? I am an old man and my wife is also old. He expresses doubt that this can, this can even happen. Are you sure you got the right guy? Are you sure you got the right guy at the right time? Is this maybe an old message? Because this, this, this can't really happen. And the angel answers him, I am Gabriel, the one who always stands ready before God. Have, have, do you ever have your parent answer you when you ask a question by telling you who they are? I am your mom. That's why. Now, that's not really a full explanation. But we've all heard that, haven't we, from a parent? Many of you who are parents, you've given that answer. Some of you have given that answer already this morning. I'm your dad, that's why. And, and so, you know, when he presses back to, to the angel and says, eh, this, this can't even be possible. The angel answers him in that way, saying, I am Gabriel, and I stand right next to God. He sent me to talk to you and tell you this good news. That's how. God sent me. That's how this is going to happen. Because God wants it. That's how this is going to happen. In verse 20, the angel keeps going. He says, now listen, you will not be able to talk until the day when these things happen. You will lose your speech because you did not believe what I told you. But everything I said will really happen. So he doesn't give him a full explanation of all of the how, and he certainly doesn't tell him why, but he just tells him, hey, this is what God wants and it's going to happen, so you might as well be ready for it. And then he tells him that, that he's going to be struck mute. He's going to be unable to speak until this happens, until the day the child is born. He is not going to be able to speak. 
I was telling Pastor Steve yesterday that, that early this week when I was telling Shannon I'm preaching on the beginning of, of Luke and the story of, of Zechariah. And Shannon said to me, you know, that, that story always gives me such hope. And I thought maybe that's because her and I have been unable to have children. And I, I kind of thought maybe we were about to begin a, a, a very serious conversation about that. And then Shannon went on and she says, someday I'm hoping that you just go up to church and you get struck mute, you come home and you can't talk to me. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet, but, but she can keep praying because in God's time, right? Verse 23, when his time of service was finished, he went home. Zechariah went home when his time serving at the temple. Later, Zechariah's wife became pregnant, so she did not go out of her house for five months. She said, look what the Lord has done for me. He decided to help me. Now people will stop thinking there is something wrong with me. So unable to speak, unable to communicate in the way he was used to, Zechariah went home and unable to speak, he and his wife conceived a child. And then his wife became very happy. She said, you know, look what God has done for me. People are now going to stop thinking something is wrong for me. God has blessed us now. And, and maybe she was a little extra grateful because her husband could no longer speak. So maybe there was maybe that was a little bit of an upside for her. But in that time, that, that punishment time where Zechariah couldn't speak, what was he learning? Because when something like that happens to us, don't we kind of learn? Has anybody ever ever broken up, broken an arm or a leg? And you kind of you kind of have to relearn how to get along on crutches or relearn how to how to move with your with your arm in a sling. In this new way, Zechariah had to relearn some things. Things that he had never even really considered. How to communicate to people without being able to speak. It it, it gave him a whole new chance to sit quietly before God because he had no choice. It was the only way that he could sit before God. That was the only way he could worship and pray, pray, was to do it silently. In that, what did he learn? And did that help him? We don't know a lot more about Zechariah. We don't, we don't get to follow his life to the end as far as scriptures go. But biblical scholars make a pretty good guess that when Herod decided to kill all of the, the young men under a certain age, to make sure that this king he had heard about got wiped out, when he decided to do that, Zechariah had hidden Elizabeth and his young son John. Biblical scholars say it is very likely that Zechariah was murdered during that purge because he wouldn't tell where his son was. It's also entirely possible that Zechariah lived long enough to have to let go of his son when his son went off into the wilderness, went off to, to go into the ministry. Maybe he really had to let go of and mourn his son when his son was beheaded. So maybe during that time of, of preparation, that time of punishment, because he was a godly man, perhaps he sat with God and says, okay, what am I supposed to learn from this? During Elizabeth's six-month of pregnancy, we're still in Luke 1, we're down in verse 26. During Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to a virgin girl who lived in Nazareth, a town in Galilee. 
She was engaged to marry a man named Joseph from the family of David. Her name was Mary. So Gabriel comes and he visits this, this young girl, most likely between the ages of 14 and 17 years old. We never learn her exact age for sure, but that was, that was kind of the age that somebody was when they were getting ready to get married. So she was engaged, she's probably 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, somewhere in there. And she is already engaged, already has plans to be married to this young man, Joseph. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, the Lord is with you, you are very special to him. But Mary was very confused about what the angel said. She wondered, what could this possibly mean? The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, because God is very pleased with you. Listen, you will become pregnant and have a baby boy. You will name him Jesus. He will be great. People will call him Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will make him king, like his ancestor David. So he's telling this young girl, you are going to conceive a child. And not an ordinary child either. A child, people are going to call him the son of God. They're not just going to say, oh, what a godly young man that is. They are not just going to say, what a, what a godlike child this is. People are going to look at this child, at this young man, when he grows into adulthood, at this man, and they are going to say, son of God. I mean, this angel is telling her something about the spiritual future of this, this, this yet-to-be-born child. And then God will make him king. What do you think Mary thought of in that moment? Probably the same way most of the world thinks about kings, even today. Because kings rule. Kings reign. Kings have power. Kings have ultimate authority. Kings are absolutely second to no one. And God's messenger is telling her, that her child is going to be called the Son of God, and he is going to be the ultimate king. And Mary's first question, out of several, I'm sure that she had in those moments, but her question is, Mary said to the angel, how will this happen? I am still a virgin. She knew she had not yet done the thing that you have to do in order to have a child. So she's thinking, how can I possibly have a child? How is this going to happen? Now you see the difference between where Zechariah pressed back in doubt. How can this happen? You got the timing all wrong here. She presses back. How will this happen? This is going to happen, but I don't understand how. Zechariah doubted. She believed, but she just, in her belief, she says, I believe you. I'm not quite sure I understand how this is going to happen, but I believe that this is going to happen. The angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come to you and the power of the Most High God will cover you. The baby will be holy and will be called the Son of God. So here we have again another miraculous conception, perhaps even more miraculous than Zechariah and Elizabeth. A, a conception that should have been medically and, and biologically and physically not even possible, yet it happens. And God is again demonstrating, not only does he move in his own time, but he moves in his own way, in ways that we can't understand, and that's okay. Talked to the teenagers last week about we don't always need to understand what God's doing or why God's doing it. We just need to be obedient. It reminds me of, of my childhood when my, one of my mom's big things was she always wanted us to make our bets every morning. 
And my theory was, I just have to unmake it at night before I go to bed, so why don't I just leave it? And my mom, no, you're going to make the bed every day. And I remember, why? Why do I have to make the bed every day? And I remember my father explaining to me, because you don't have to know why she wants the bed made. You just have to understand that that's what she wants, and then you just have to obey and do it. You don't need to know why she wants it made. You just need to know that she wants it made, so you are going to make it. So I started making my bed every day. Still don't really understand why, but I did. <laughs> so Mary re replies with, Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let this thing you have said happen to me. Then the angel went away. The angel didn't stick around and answer all of her questions, and I'm sure she had more than one follow-up question. Especially since the angel had just said, look, God is going to cover you and this is going to happen. Still hasn't really answered the, the how. And not really the why. And, and some of like the future, the kid is going to be the son of God and he's going to be a king. But, but there's still a lot of what that she doesn't know. But even in all of that uncertainty, she still had faith. Now we see that deep faith now looking back at the story because we know the story of, of Christ's life. But in that moment, she had no way of knowing that. But see, this wasn't something that God was just kind of making up as he went along. This wasn't something that God decided one day, kind of looking down at Zechariah and saying, you know what, maybe, maybe I'll give this, this old man and, and his wife, maybe I'll give them a child. And maybe that child can kind of grow up and, 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 and be a preacher. And, and that's what we'll do. And then maybe I'll have a relative of his have a child of her own. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's what I'll do. And maybe that child can grow up and, and do this. This wasn't something he made up on the spot. This had already been in place. In the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, Old Testament before Jesus was even born, in chapter 40, it describes a voice crying out from the wilderness. Well, that's how John the Baptist identified himself in the Gospel of John. He says, I am that voice that cries out from the wilderness. John the Baptist was talked about all the way back in the book of Isaiah. In Malachi chapter 3, the Lord All-Powerful says, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord you are looking for will come to his temple. Yes, the messenger you are waiting for, the one who will tell about my agreement is really coming. So in the book of Malachi, it's talking about both John the Baptist and Jesus. The one who's going to tell you about him, and then him himself, they are going to come. And this was back in the Old Testament. God wasn't making this up as he went along. This was already in place. Jesus was mentioned in the Old Testament as well, all the way back in Genesis, the very first book of the Old Testament. In the third chapter, early in the first book of the Old Testament, God was talking to, to the serpent, and he talked about how he will make enemies out of her offspring, out of the serpent's offspring, and, and out of Eve's offspring. And, and he kind of talks about how the, the snake will try to, try to bite at humans' heels, and then how one of these offspring someday will crush the head of the snake. And you can read that and you can just kind of picture somebody stepping on a snake and killing a snake because it's kind of scary or gross looking or, or whatever. And you can picture a snake trying to bite somebody's, somebody's foot. 
But understanding scripture, as many of us do, we know that he was talking about Satan and Christ. And Satan is going to try to continually bite at our feet and trip us up. Snare us around the ankle so that we fall into sin. But we know that Christ came along and crushed Satan and broke that power of sin. Because that sin that came into all the world with Adam and Eve that kept us separated from God because God can't be in the presence of sin, Christ showed up and he broke that system. Because now we have a way to be in the presence of God. And that was God's plan from the start. Once Adam and Eve sinned and introduced sin into paradise, and then God put them out of paradise because he can't be in the presence of sin. It's not that he hates sin. It's not that he can't stand sin. It's not that sin angers him. But he put them out because he can't be in the presence of sin. Just like we can't breathe underwater. Or we can't defy gravity on our own. He cannot be in the presence of sin. And we sin. So he cannot be in our presence. Now he wants to be with us so much. This wasn't one of these deals where when mankind sinned and they couldn't be in the presence of God. And God said, well, I guess I'll just live without him. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do something else. I'll, I'll take up a hobby. Or I'll just watch them from afar. No, he loves us and he wants to be in our presence, but he can't as long as we sin. And I think we would, we would all agree, I mean, whether you are always in church or whether you are in church occasionally, or maybe you've never even been in church before, I think we can all agree, we all sin. In different ways and to different degrees, maybe. But is there anybody in here that has absolutely, positively never told a lie? I'm not going to wait too much longer because I'm pretty sure I know what the answer is. We've all lied in some way. Anybody in here that's never taken something that wasn't yours? Anybody in here that's never been angry at somebody unnecessarily? Anybody here that's never lost their temper in some way? Anybody in here that has ever, ever, ever been consumed with lust, whether that was for physical pleasure or maybe that was just you were coveting something the neighbor had, not just admiring the neighbor's new car, but really, really wanting that new car. Anybody ever, ever done that? Struggled with want in a real way? That sin separates us from God. We cannot be in God's presence. So the, the first couple chapters of the story about the nativity, he sent this little baby to lay in this manger, to lay in the hay. This someday king. Now, God works in his own way. And when God talked about a king, he didn't mean somebody who was going to show up and rule and reign. He meant somebody who was going to rule over sin and break sin's power. And that little baby, of course, is going to grow up to be our Savior. He didn't come as a, as a king to rule. He came as a sacrifice who would lay his life down. I think Ben's got a picture for us. 
I hope we remember to bring it in. By we, I mean me. Now, this is an actor playing Jesus in a movie. This is not an actual photograph of, of Jesus. just want to clarify that in case anybody wondered. But because we deserve punishment for our sin, that little baby was sent to grow up both man and God. And that little baby grew up to take our punishment. Because we deserve punishment for our sin. And that little baby grew up into to Jesus. And Jesus took our punishment. Not in this vague for all of mankind way. Although that's absolutely true. He did. But Jesus took finished physical punishment for my sins. For each of your sins. Our picture of the nativity, of the cute little baby and the shepherds and the manger and the animals and, and all of that, that is not complete unless we acknowledge the Savior who hung on the cross and died broken and in agony for our sins. So I want to end with just two challenges this morning. And I, I promise to go as quick as I could because I don't want to stand between us and tacos any any longer than I have to. Well, it smells so good back there. But this first the first challenge is this, and I want everybody to pay attention. If you are unsure about where you are going to spend eternity, I want you to know that you are the one that Jesus loves. That punishment, that that death on the cross. That was for you, just like it was for each of us. If you are unsure about where you are going to spend eternity, you can spend eternity with God. You just have to accept that Christ hung on the cross in your place. That he did that for you. So that when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin that keeps you from being in his presence. He sees you covered with the blood of Christ and Christ's sacrifice. Christ took all of your sin on himself and you can be sinless and be in the presence of God. So my first challenge is this. If you do not know where you are going to spend eternity, I would like to challenge you to fix that this morning. If you would like to come forward, I would love to pray with you. There are other people in this room that would love to pray with you. They would love to answer your questions before they pray with you. So that you can figure out what this Jesus and born again Christian thing really is. So I want to challenge you to come forward in just a minute. If you're not sure where you are going to spend eternity. And I'm going to challenge everybody else here. If the person next to you gets up and starts to move, you come with them. Don't make somebody walk up here by themselves. Don't let the, the embarrassment of being the only one in the room coming up. To keep somebody from accepting this, this gift. And my second challenge is this. If you would like to, if you know you need to, kind of recalibrate what Christmas means. Whether it's been years and years since you've really considered the Savior on the cross as a part of all this. Or whether it's just been a hectic couple of weeks and you've just kind of gotten off track, and you just need to kind of realign yourself, 
I would like to challenge you to come forward and kind of just publicly make that commitment. Not to come forward and talk about it. We don't, we're not going to pass the microphone around and, and do that. But just kind of come forward and, and be up here at the altar and do some business with God. Where you can kneel down and do some business with God. Where you can come up and just fellowship and talk to somebody for a few minutes. We would love to pray with you. But I would like to challenge you to think about this Christmas season in a very different way than we normally do, than the culture tells us to, than the way that we all get caught up in because it's such a busy time of the year. So I want us to bow our heads and I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray, if you feel moved to come forward, please do so. Pastor Steve would love to talk to you. I would love to talk to you. And there's plenty of other people in the room that can talk to you if you would like to spend time with them. Lord, Lord, I pray that I have not been in the way of, of, this, of this small piece of, of the angelic visits in the nativity. But Lord, I pray that your love will shine through around the, the maybe clumsy way that I have, I have done my best to explain this. Because, Lord, the nativity is not about a, a cute baby. The nativity is about a, a broken Savior who took our place on the cross so that we could spend eternity with you. Lord, I would pray if somebody is feeling prompted right now to make any sort of a change, whether it's a change of their spiritual destination or whether it is just a, a commitment to think about their Savior in that manger. Lord, I pray that they would they would deal with that today. They would, they would find somebody to talk to, somebody to pray with, somebody to spend some time with. And Lord, what a great morning to do that as we get ready to fellowship and, and eat and laugh and, and visit together. Lord, I pray that the time that we spend together after the service would be a time that, that uplifts and encourages us all, but it would also be a time that would honor you. Lord, I am so humbled to be able to stand in this great church with these great people and speak about the truth of who you are. Lord, I just pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.